Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Friday, November 10th. I'm Tiffany Hansen, host here in the WNYC newsroom, filling in for Brian today. This week, we had the second Republican primary debate, the first since the start of the war in Israel and Gaza. Also this week, 22 Democrats, including several New Yorkers and one rep from New Jersey, joined fellow Republicans in the House in a vote to censure Michigan Democrat Rashida Tlaib over comments she made about Israel. Plus, newly minted Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is staring at the potential of a government shutdown if a stopgap spending bill can't get passed before Thanksgiving. Oh, and there was an election this week. We'll talk about all of the developments from the week with Susan Page, the Washington bureau chief at USA Today. She joins us now for our Friday Politics Roundup. Hi, Susan. Hey, Tiffany, it's great to be with you. It has been a busy week. So I figure let's just go Monday to Friday. We'll start with Monday. There was a (laughs) poll that came out on Monday, New York Times Siena College poll that basically showed Biden down by anywhere from four to 10 points in some key swing states like Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada. So got a lot of people talking, including someone we'll get to in a minute, David Axelrod. But first, let's just talk about this poll. What is it that has, I guess, particularly Democrats hand-wringing over this, aside from just the obvious? All right. Well, of course, there is the obvious that in five of six swing states, all states that Joe Biden carried last time around, he was trailing Donald Trump. But for folks in the White House, what was more alarming were when you looked at the crosstabs and you saw uh, President Biden's current weakness among uh, groups that are part of his core coalition. That includes voters under 35, uh, mm-hmm. voters of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are, these are the, the pre, pre, uh, Donald Trump has scored gains among Hispanic voters and among black voters. Um, and that's what gives some serious concern. It really uh, shook up Democrats in a big way. And if, if when we get to the next day of the week, if Tuesday hadn't been such a good mm-hmm. day for Democrats, we'd still be talking about that poll. Even though we are hmm, you know, a year out at this point, it's still elicited a, such a big response. I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, we're so far out. Does it really show us anything? Sure. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't predict what will happen in the election. And we make a mistake when we look at polls and think they tell us what's going to happen in the future. But they tell us what's happening right now. It tells us what people are feeling uh, uh, in their own lives at the moment. And so, for instance, even though the White House makes the case that there's some good economic news, that the jobs numbers continue to be very strong, that inflation is still a problem, but it's moderated, Americans are telling us in these polls that they don't feel that in their daily lives. And that is probably the issue that is uh, hurting President Biden the most when people ask about things like like his approval rating. You know, presidents in the past have had weak approval ratings one year before their re-election. Mm. And then they go on to win re-election. Right. President Obama would be an example of that. But there is some special concern about Joe Biden, and some of that centers just around his age. Mm-hmm. One more question about this poll before I let it go. Um, we mentioned the hand-wringing that's happening among Democrats about this, you know, 
what appears to be a little bit of a of a lackluster performance so far out of from the election among Democrats and among those voters you mentioned under 35 Hispanic voters, black voters. Is there anything else besides hand wringing going on? I guess what I'm asking is hand wringing is one thing, but sort of addressing the problem head on and understanding what the why these voters are leaving and then addressing that head on. Is that happening? Well, so there are two ways you could address this situation. One is you can make uh, renewed efforts, new strategies to convince those voters that you're doing a good job and they should support you. The other thing you could do is change who's running for the office. Mm. Uh, and that's what has caused some particular turbulence in, in the in Democratic waters. David Axelrod, whose name you mentioned, yeah. uh, one of the top strategists for uh, President Obama, very, a very senior Democratic strategist, and one who is uh, often not spoken in a most the most favorable possible way about Joe Biden, uh, made comments that questioning right. whether Biden should reconsider his decision to run again. Now, Axelrod didn't say Democrats should oust Biden. They said Biden needs to make a decision about whether it's the right thing for the country. And man, that caused <clears throat> Axelrod some significant turbulence in the Democratic Party. And later in the week, he tried to walk that back a bit saying he right. wasn't suggesting Biden not run again. That was a hard walk back to make because it's pretty clear that's exactly what Axelrod Well, was right. Suggesting. I can tell you exactly what he said. If he continues to run, this is a quote, if he continues to run, he will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. What he needs to decide is whether that is wise, whether it is in his best interest or the country's. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so it's hard to say there isn't a message to Joe Biden in those comments. And in fairness to Axelrod, that is a conversation senior Democrats, including some who very much respect Joe Biden and what he's done as president. That's a conversation they're having. They're just not having it out loud. Well, I think it also points to, as you mentioned, or you alluded to, I guess, this rift kind of between the Obama camp and the Biden camp. So, yeah. um I'm wondering, does this signal that, you know, surrogates for uh, Biden during this upcoming election season will not include people from the Obama campaign, the Obama administration? Well, there are people from the Obama administration in really senior roles in the Biden administration. And and some of Biden's supporters were people who also served in the Obama administration. But President Obama has mostly tried to stay out of Joe Biden's way, I think, as president. I think uh, Obama was a little skeptical uh, about Biden running for president at all last time around. Um, so there, you know, it's not unknown of, it's not the first time we've seen a little friction between the guy who was in charge and the guy who succeeded him. That said, Obama did something this week that was really uh, problematic for Joe Biden. Mm. And I think it's really the first time he's done something like that since Biden was sworn in. And that is, he talked uh, in a, a very direct way on a podcast about the Israel-Hamas right. conflict. And that has caused a real rift uh, in the Democratic Party. It's creating Joe Biden to stand very firmly with on the side of, of Israel, although he's also talked about the need for a pause in the fighting there and the uh, admission of humanitarian aid and allowing refugees to leave. But Obama in this podcast talked about there's blood on all our hands. Uh, he talked about the Palestinian plight uh, in, a, in a way that uh, that Biden has not. And that gave Democrats who disagree with Biden's approach to the Middle East some comfort and some ammunition 
in a way that was not helpful to this White House. Is it a comment ultimately, though, that will affect the large num- a large number of swing voters or even registered Democratic voters in general, not just sort of people who are plugged in, but but actual, you know, voters who are considering whether or not to vote Biden in again? Actual voters, we should think about them more often. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're the ones that actually determine who gets elected. But the thing is, if you want to be president, you got to do both things. You've got to get your core supporters really ginned up to turn out to work for you. And you've got to reach out and persuade swing voters who sometimes vote one way, sometimes vote the other, that you're the person uh, they should they should back. And mm-hmm. it, that's why being president and being reelected is kind of, is a difficult thing to do. Not everybody succeeds in doing it uh, because you have to do both things and you have to do them at once. And sometimes those two goals are at cross purposes. So, Susan, let's move on to Tuesday. Um you mentioned the um, rift sort of building between the Obama camp and the Biden camp over these comments about the uh, Obama's comments on the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, progressive Democrat from Michigan on Tuesday, was censured by the House um, She over comments that she made about the war. My question is, does she, you know, and it's largely seen, I would argue, as a reprimand for her. I'm wondering, does she see it that way? And or does she see it rather as a way to, I don't know, coalesce her 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 supporters around her viewpoint? You know, that's that, Tiffany, I not think that's a question I can answer because you have to be in inside the congresswoman's head to understand how she saw it. But I will say I watched her speech on the House floor, mm. which was quite emotional. And she did not seem to, she seemed to take this very seriously and to be uh, uh, heard about it. I mean, she did not, she, she did not strike me as someone who was using this as some big rallying cry to get people behind her. She talked with some passion about what's happening with the Palestinians. She's, of course, the only Palestinian American serving in Congress. She said that Palestinians are not disposable people. Mm. Um, at times, she uh, seemed to be crying. So I think she took this pretty seriously. You know, getting censured by Congress, uh, people throw that around at the moment all the time, but it's in fact historically been really rare. I think she's only the, I think this is only the 25th time Congress in its his, in our history that Congress has voted to, to censure uh, a member. So I, it looked to me like she was that she took this to heart and was distressed that this was happening. And and of course, it divided her own party. I mean, a lot of those, a lot of votes we see in the House are almost entirely along party lines. In this case, 22 Democrats voted to censor her, uh, including, as you said, three from from New York. Uh, That's the 22 Democrats, 22 of her Democratic colleagues voted to censor her. Um, That is a, that's, most of them stood with her, but, but that's not insignificant. Is there, we talk about that group of Democrats that is not insignificant from her party, Dan Goldman from New York's 10th, Pat Ryan from the 18th, Richie Torres from the 15th, and in New Jersey, Josh Gottheimer. So I'm wondering if there is some thread that you can pull that ties that small group of Democrats together in their vote against her. 
You know, you, you, Democrats historically have stood quite staunchly uh, behind Israel uh, and the Jewish people, and um, uh, that's you know that's that's been an important uh, characteristic also uh, in New York and New Jersey. Um, and so, when you think about uh, uh, what's happening in the Middle East, you hear those um, members want no one to forget what happened on October seventh. Uh, but you also had this this uh, rising thread among the most liberal members of Congress, which also includes uh, people who come from New York and New Jersey who think that po- U.S. policy toward the region has been out of whack and there needs to be more consideration of uh, the Palestinians, even while still supporting Israel. And so that's the tension that is dividing the Democratic Party. You know, there are issues that divide Republicans like uh, access to abortion, but mm-hmm. this is now becoming a big issue that divides uh, Democrats, and in a really, in a really passionate way, this is an issue in which the people who care about it care about it really a lot. Uh, one of the things we heard about this election on Tuesday was, you know, the low turnout was maybe because people are fed up with the system; they're just disenchanted. Is that a real concern, not just for? What is arguably usually a low turnout election, would that hold into next year? And is it is it real? You know, there's there's a another issue that is of great concern to the White House and could could well shape this race next year. And that is the possibility of serious third party candidacies. So we may have these multiple serious uh, Cornell West, another Mm -hmm. uh, person who says he's going to run an independent campaign. And what we see is this makes the math really complicated. It doesn't all hurt Biden. Uh, the early polling indicates that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. hurts Trump more than Biden. Mm-hmm. But Cornell West and Jill Stein hurt Biden more than Trump. It means that there are states that we don't think of as swing states that maybe become uh, more like a swing state. Uh, it means swing states could be tipped one way or another. That's that's the big risk of a candidate who doesn't generate a lot of enthusiasm uh, within some in his party is if they have someplace else to go and it looks like there'll be several other places they can go if we have these independent candidates on the ballot talk about hand-wringing lots. yes there's lots of <laughs> hand-wringing are us here in washington <laughs> susan before we leave the election i want you know we talked about how this poll that came out from the new york times and sienna about uh you know we're, we're a year out is it really you know something we could should be even talking about at this point we're so far out from the election could the same thing really might be able to be said about these wins, quote unquote, wins for Democrats that happened uh, during, you know, Tuesday's election? Incumbent Governor Andy Bashir re-won, you know, re won re-election rather uh, in Kentucky, um, Democrats in Virginia, basically dealing a bit of a blow to Governor Glenn Youngkin, um, ensuring that he didn't get control of the state legislature. Ohio voters, of course. Um, passing a constitutional amendment, um, ensuring access to abortion. Uh, A lot of Democrats saying, hey, this is great news for us. Like, uh, you know, this is something that we can we can piggyback right into 2024. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, by the way, Tiffany, we're only up to Tuesday. (laughs) Right. I know. Right. That's the kind of week it's that's the kind of week it's been. (laughs) You know, I think that the the this what was meaningful about Tuesday was it just showed the enormous resilience and power 
that the issue of access to abortion continues to have, even in red states, even in Ohio, uh, which is a state that that Democrats no longer even campaign for president. And even in Ohio, uh, by by cl- close to two to one, not quite that, by double digits, uh, voters voted to enshrine in the state constitution a right to abortion. Uh, and that shows how out of step Republicans are on this. We talk about Democrats having a problem when it comes to policy on the Mideast, where Republicans have a problem dividing their coalition on the issue of abortion. And and we see they have not figured out a way to kind of square that circle. Uh, you mentioned Glenn Youngkin. He got not just a little setback Tuesday. He saw his presidential mm. ambitions mm. go up in a puff of smoke. Uh, <laughs> he had fashioned what he said was a compromised position on abortion, a, a ban at 15 weeks. Uh, that did fail to convince voters they lost. Now, Democrats won united control of the state legislature. That means that Youngkin will have more trouble than before in enacting his agenda on anything from abortion to uh, parental rights and other issues on which he's campaigned. So there's somebody who was talked about as a savior for the Republican Party, a possible alternative to Donald Trump. And that is not the conversation that we began having about Glenn Youngkin on Wednesday morning. So this is this is just an issue with with possibilities because Democrats are in step with where American the American public is and Republicans are not. Now, they've got a year to kind of work this out to figure out what they think. But for Republicans, the problem is a big part of their base cares a lot about opposing abortion rights. So how do they uh, hold on to their, those evangelical Christians and other social conservatives while also convincing swing voters in states like in places like New York suburbs? Uh, that they uh, hear and understand what their views are on this issue. I'm wondering if it is, if we can extrapolate out from this that issue voters are attracted to uh, a party that can say not only what they're against, but what they're for. And this is something that the Democrats have been criticized for, uh, that, you know, no, nobody knows what we're for is what a lot of Democrats have come out and said. We need to say what we're for. One of the things that a Democrat can come out now and say is, and have, but maybe to more effectiveness now, um, is that we're going to take this abortion issue and we're going to take it to the polls. And is that accurate? Well, Tiffany, if you lived uh, in the D.C. areas, as I do, you'd see that every ad that ran uh, by a Democrat on the in, for a Virginia legislative race was about abortion. And if you lived in Kentucky, where I don't, but where you saw uh, Andy Bashir, a Democrat running for re-election there, uh, he talked on the stump about things like roads and bridges and the internet, but his ads focused front and center mm. on abortion rights, including an emotional ad, uh, a, a, a touching ad um, toward the end that had a young woman talking about her experience with sexual abuse from her uh, by her stepfather, I think, when she was 12 years old. And she was in the front row of the audience at his victory celebration. And he acknowledged her, uh, Hadley is her name, from the stage uh, and thanked her for her role. So I think Democrats in those places this year, it was pretty clear the issue that they thought was going to be most important through the electoral pro- prospects and that and that was abortion. And there had been some thought that it just wasn't that that this was a test about whether abortion, which was played a big role in the midterms a year ago, whether it still had that potency, and it still does. Let's switch gears now, and we'll move to Wednesday, <laughs> Susan. <laughs> <laughs> the Republican debate was on Wednesday night, and I should say, and 
former President Trump's competing rally was also Wednesday night. Um, you know, there there's always the the polls that come out, you know, that say the winners and losers of the debate were. Um, and if you follow those and if you believe those, Nikki Haley sort of seems to be on top, not really, you know, showing much movement, kind of staying sort of lower to middle in terms of performance, uh, Chris Christie, Rick Scott. So what I'm just wondering is, let's if we switch gears and now talk about the Republicans, how are you viewing, let's take Trump out of it altogether, just among the people on the debate stage, how are you viewing Haley's chances? So Tiffany, here's the problem. How do you take Trump off the debate stage? I know you were going to say that. (laughs) The the question is, when I was looking, I tried to write an analysis of the debate, which is uh, honestly just a terrible task to have, to make instant sense of it. But my bottom line was, did anything, did Trump is the almost certain nominee, did anything happen on the debate stage that makes that less likely? And I think the answer to that is no. Mm. And I think that's why Trump has chosen not to participate in the first three debates and says he won't participate in the fourth one in Alabama next month. So in that way, you talk about the winners and losers. Well, the winner is Donald Trump of that debate. Now, if you do try to take Trump off the stage, I do think Nikki Haley has been the the breakout star of the Republican field. Uh, And on all three debates, she's shown um, how, uh, how comfortable she is um, how she has managed to learn how to attack an opponent without coming across as quite as obnoxious as perhaps somebody else on that stage came across as. Um, I think that she has done herself a lot of good because there's there's more than one reason why you might run for president. One is because you want to be president, you want to get the nominee, but maybe you want to set yourself up for the next campaign. And if you look at kind of that slightly broader picture, I think Nikki Haley has done herself a lot of good. Well, someone that... Um former President Trump said was not looking at the wider picture is Iowa's governor. Um, (laughs) He basically said, well, that person doesn't want to do anything past being Iowa's governor um, in his world. Uh, Of course, Iowa governor came out and endorsed DeSantis. I mean, did it really what what was the point there? Did it really do anything for DeSantis? Didn't really do much for the governor in terms of you know, getting some decent press for herself out of it. Well, here, here's the thing. We talk, we, we talk about everything in terms of the tactics. Maybe Kim Reynolds really thinks DeSantis would be the best, best president. And he staked his claim in, in Iowa. If he doesn't do really well in Iowa, he doesn't have a next state to go to. Uh, after starting out as a seeing at the, uh, at the, as the alternative to Donald Trump, he is no longer seen that way. Um, so, Kim, Kim Reynolds is extraordinarily popular in Iowa. It is a little unusual for an Iowa governor to endorse a candidate not unheard of, but typically not what they do. The fact that she endorsed him, I don't know if it helps him a lot, but it certainly doesn't hurt him. It's it's a steal of approval that presumably is is somewhat helpful. And given given the downside of endorsing anybody, I assume it's because she actually uh, wants him to win the Iowa caucuses. And you know they're they're now two months away. There is some, we should be modest about what we know for sure. We don't know for sure what's going to happen in Iowa. And we especially don't know for sure what will happen in New Hampshire, a state that has given us upsets more than once in this presidential process. So I'm looking I'm looking forward, as we said earlier in this hour, to letting voters actually express their own opinions by how they cast their ballots. Mm. Just one la- last quick question. <laughs> Uh, about the debate, why why t- TikTok just 
brought everybody, <laughs> brought the claws out. <laughs> you know, uh, I think TikTok was the vehicle for what seems to be some ill feeling between Vivak Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Uh, uh, but that was that was a pretty uh, remarkable exchange. I don't know that I've ever in a like a kind of a mainstream debate like this heard one candidate call the other scum. scum. I think yeah. that may be a I think that may be a red line. We were you know we we have people here who watch what's trending. Uh, on social media during these debates. Uh, and they said one of the things that was tri tri uh, trending was, what is the definition of scum? Oh, interesting. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to leave that there <laughs> and <laughs> move to Thursday. Uh, uh, before we run out of time, Susan, just you, you mentioned Joe Manchin. Of course, Joe Manchin uh, announced on Thursday that he's not seeking reelection. Um, and that, I don't know, is are they rumors at this point that he might be mounting his own third-party presidential bid? Yes, absolutely. He he certainly, his statement certainly left that possibility open. He said he was going to travel the country and see if there was interest in a movement from the middle. That certainly sounded like he was open to considering this prospect. Do So you also mentioned Jill Stein. Um, we have uh, RFK. Is our third is is this the moment for a third party candidate to finally bust through? There's in, there there's kind of two forces here. One is the dissatisfaction with the two major parties. I don't think it's ever been as high as it is now. The number of Americans who identify themselves as independents. On the other hand, the fierce polarization may may make people vote against the side they're really against, and that may help. Republicans get Republican voters to come home and Democrats to get Democratic voters to come home because they are so much voting against whoever's mm. on the other side of that aisle. Voting against actually gets people to the polls as much as voting for? Sometimes more. Sometimes more. All right, Susan, there's a good place to leave it. USA Today, Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. Susan, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Tiffany, thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.